lovely to be here this afternoon and uh, visiting with our son and family and uh, having the privilege of being with you all at church. I do want to read two passages from the scriptures, uh, but before that I want to give some idea of um, the takeaway, two things that you can take away because as Indians when we travel around um, London particularly, you see takeaways, all kinds of takeaways, so <laughs> I, I thought we could think of two takeaways. One is the good news, which is really the topic for this month. I think Richard started us off a couple of Sundays ago. Uh, I want you to begin to think of the good news as relating to the kingdom, the kingdom of God. We will look at scripture to show that because very often today we have made the good news purely individual and personal. Uh, which means that when I come to trust in Christ, I will be with him eternally. And I will not have to face eternal punishment, which is important, but which is not uh, the entire good news. It's good for us to see beyond ourselves as to what the good news is. Secondly, we need to begin to see that we are responsible for bringing in the kingdom. The kingdom is not entirely God's responsibility, it is ours as well, because he made us in his image. So the first passage we will look at, just two verses from Mark chapter 1, when Jesus begins his ministry by announcing the kingdom. He says this, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The good news is about the coming of the kingdom and repentance would involve change of mind as well as change of heart towards who God is. But the second passage which we want to read is from Psalm 8. Now, if you are following our church Bibles, the NIV, uh, we are going to stop for a moment in verse 5 and refer to the footnote. Verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, uh, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than heavenly beings. Uh, what do you see in the footnote? than God, because the original Hebrew is actually Elohim, which should have been translated as God, because angels are not made in the image of God. Only humans are made in the image of God. So what David intended to say here is that we are made a little lower than Elohim, and we are crowned with glory and honor. You made him ruler, so we are kings and queens. You made him ruler over the works of your hands, you put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. It's a recapitulation of Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the first man and woman, he says to them, you can rule over my creation. And so I, we want to see these two aspects briefly, but I hope this would help us to 
begin to change our understanding of what the good news is. Interestingly, uh, the, the Greek for uh, good news is evangelion, which means a good announcement. Uh, it was in use long before the Christian faith came into existence. It was first used rather intriguingly by Emperor Augustus when he took over the Roman Empire after all the confusion following the assassination of Julius Caesar and so on. He said that the good news, the Evangelion, is that Augustus has become the Caesar. And now you can begin to see when Jesus comes and makes the announcement in Mark chapter 1 verse 15, the kingdom of God is near, that is the good news. And later in the early church, the Caesars insisted that Christians should say, Caesar is Lord. But the Christians said, no, we have to say, Jesus is Lord. So you find that there are, there are these two kingdoms in conflict all the while right up to our present day, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the evil one. And I think it's good for us to begin to see that the kingdom of God is near through the coming of Christ, through the coming of God, the Holy Spirit, on the first day of Pentecost. You also see the reference to the kingship of Jesus very often, straight uh, from the announcement of the angels to the shepherds. They said, to you is born this day a savior who is Christ the Lord, and he is a descendant of David, which means he's part of the kingly uh, lineage. So he is the king. Although the shepherds uh, may not have had a full theological appreciation of what it meant. But for us, and we read uh, with the benefit of hindsight, we begin to see that Jesus' coming was as king. And of course, we notice that people mistook his understanding of the kingdom, including his disciples. In fact, when Jesus was about to ascend into heaven, Acts chapter 1, the disciples asked him, uh, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Because they expected Jesus to be a political king who would um, liberate the Jewish people from the rule of Rome. But uh, Jesus told them, no, it's not for you to know the times and seasons, but you will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses and we are witnesses of his kingdom. To Pilate, who thought that Jesus was a political king, he said, if my kingdom is of this world, then my soldiers will fight for me. But like, my kingdom is not from this world. So I think we need to disabuse ourselves of a wrong understanding of the kingdom, that Jesus did not come to set up a political kingdom, but the rule of God in the hearts of humans. And that, of course, is very evident from the prayer that he taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we begin to see that the good news of the kingdom, the gospel, is the fact that Jesus has come and completed his work, and now he has left us to be able to communicate uh, that aspect of the kingdom. And that's where I'm going to spend the rest of my time uh, to share with you some important thoughts. I want to go to a verse in the first chapter of the Bible, 
and a verse in the last chapter of the Bible. Uh, first of all, Genesis 1 verse 28. God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea. He gave us authority to be in charge of God's creation. And we come to the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 5. And they will reign forever and ever. So the understanding of rulership of humans on behalf of God is central to scripture. You know, uh, pe people like us, uh, Indians, you know, India is a very interesting country because it was part of the old British Empire. Uh, do you know that India has been declared as the country with the highest number of English speakers? The problem is 350 million Indians speak 350 million types of English. Uh, and so you need to track our accent. I think even those who have lived here for very long uh, speak very differently. Uh, but, um, you know, in India we used to have the Viceroy. He was um, in place of the king here, the emperor. And when you read Genesis 1, you begin to see that we are vice regents. We are to rule over God's creation in his place. And that's a tremendous authority. You know, particularly, of course, Richard didn't ask me this question during that surprise interview. Uh, but one of the things I have, I'm a civil engineer, I'm a building engineer. And uh, for those of us who belong to the older generation, when uh, um, I walk on Churchy Road near our son's house, I see post office telephones. Do you connect that? The old British post office was actually for postal services as well as telecommunication services. That is the department I joined 50 years ago as a civil engineer, building their post offices and telephone exchanges. Of course, the two departments have been separated, privatized. Uh, here it is BT and now it's all so many other companies have come in. We have mobile phones now. India is also privatizing, but our postal services are still entirely uh, with the government. So that was my job. And one of the things I discovered, particularly uh, within an Indian philosophical background, is this rulership over nature is something that doesn't come very easy to the Indian mind. Because many of our people are worshippers of nature. In fact, I remember when uh, I was posted in the northeast part of the country, we have a huge river uh, running through the midst of one of our states. Uh, it's, uh, it's the name translated to English is the son of the God of creation. And uh, civil engineers, the Indian Railways, they built a bridge across that. And villages on either bank, I mean, they're so surprised that you could build a bridge across the son of the God of creation. I mean, unthinkable. But for us, who believe in the God of the Bible, and in the first chapter of the Bible, we begin to see that it's because God has delegated to us the authority to rule over his creation, which means we look after his creation, we steward his creation, we do not spoil creation, but at the same time, we become responsible. So in one sense, the kingdom of God, the good news, is when God's people begin to spearhead the understanding of how we are to look after his creation. Secondly, in fact, our morning uh, worship group, 
the first song that we sang was um, How Great the What? Uh, and you ha the last one, composed by this group of uh, musicians, also had something to say about galaxies. Now, I want you to go back to that old hymn, if you remember the stanzas. The first stanza says, I see the stars, I hear the mighty thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. The second stanza, uh, when through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, and when from lofty mountain grandeur I hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze, and then we say, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. But when you come to the third stanza, you suddenly say, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die. You know David Pawson? Have you heard the name of David Pawson? Used to be pastor of a church in Guildford, I think, sorry. Uh, one of his visits to Singapore some years ago, he came recently too. He's a very old man now. But uh, that time when he was uh, with a group of pastors, some 200 of them, he gave them two minutes to imagine the most beautiful scenery in their minds. And after that, he asked at random, what did you imagine? People had uh, thought of stars and fountains and mountains, streams, hills, valleys, and so on. And then he asked them, you have not included a human being as part of God's creation. Not one of them had included humans as part of God's creation. And I think that's a huge omission. So I was suggesting at the morning service that we should write two more stanzas, if you are poetically inclined, uh, to that uh, beautiful hymn to make it more complete. Your, fourth, uh, your third stanza should be about the greatness of human creation. Psalm 8, you have made him a little lower than Elohim, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, and your chorus could be, then sings my soul. Well, I think the PA system doesn't like what I'm saying. Kian. Okay. Your chorus can even be, then sings my soul, O creature, man to thee, how great thou art. And you will not be guilty of heresy. I mean, we don't include uh, humans as part of God's creation. And I think that's one of the reasons why we often look down upon ourselves and therefore look down upon others. All human complexes come out of this huge omission. So we need to have a stanza in which we think about and sing about the greatness of being human. But then we should quickly write a fourth stanza, which is about human rebellion taking your cue from uh, Genesis chapter 3, when we decide to proclaim autonomy from God by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so you write a fourth stanza, and your chorus for that fourth stanza should be, then cries my soul, O creature, man to thee, how wild thou art. And then come to the fifth stanza of our new hymn, and when I think that God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die, it will make for uh, theological continuity. Uh, I, I think it's extremely important for us to begin to see ourselves as part of the answer to the problem. We are not just part of the problem, but we are also part of the answer to the problem. And that is why uh, Jesus is fully God, fully human, and so in that way, he is beginning to inaugurate Graham Kendrick 
whose songs I love very much in uh, one of his worship songs. I don't know whether you sing it here. Meekness and Majesty, Manhood and Deity. The last stanza, God of infinity, stooping so tenderly, lifts our humanity to the heights of his throne. I think that is what redemption is. Where now at the right hand of God, there is a human being who represents us and who gives us the promise of dignity to being human. And this is no empty psychology. This is something central to what the Bible says. This is biblical anthropology. You know, we have, I think many of our children, grandchildren, will be studying uh, in our universities under teachers like um, Peter Singer. Peter Singer is an Australian uh, who used to teach till recently at Princeton. And he is uh, famous or notorious uh, for the statement, a live animal is more valuable than a human fetus. Now that's the kind of understanding of humanity that we are being taught in some of our universities. And to come to the scriptures and to begin to see that when Jesus announced the gospel, he announces the arrival of the kingdom and he's asking us to pray that his kingdom should come, his will should be done on earth as it is done in heaven. But finally, a diagnosis of the problem. Now, Genesis chapter 3, after the first human pair fall away from God, God has something interesting to say to the woman. In verse 16, and I very often ask wives particularly to say, uh, this part of the verse, the second part of verse 16, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. What do you think of this verse? And the normal answer is, it's a kind of a mixture, something good and something bad. Uh, have you ever thought that this is an entirely bad statement? I mean, God is telling us, because of your rebellion against me, there is something very fundamental which goes wrong in human behavior. If you look at the next chapter of Genesis, chapter 4, verse 7, where God is telling Cain about sin, sin desires to have you. The word desire in the Hebrew occurs only three times in the entire Old Testament. It actually means a manipulative desire. In 21st century language, God is telling the man and the woman here, uh, you will use your feminine charm to control and manipulate your husband. And the dumb, mature man will not know how to respond except by dominating you. A great statement on the desire for control. I would say that that is really our problem. I mean, children, how did, where did they learn how to manipulate one parent against the other? I mean, they didn't go to Oxbridge. But some, they learned it somewhere. It is part of the human genome. And the kingdom of God is announced by Christ. And I want you to look at the cross. The cross is many dimensions. But I want you to take this dimension with you today. The cross is God choosing to lose control over his creation. Where he allows his creatures to crucify him. Unique. That's why the salvation that we have in Christ, the good news of the cross is unparalleled. 
it cannot be replaced by any other way of salvation. Because all ways of salvation are about conquest. Whereas here, the victim is the conqueror. In fact, one of the, if you read the passion passages in all the four gospels, uh, you notice that the title that was put on Jesus' cross was not what the Pharisees wanted. The Pharisees wanted the title to say, he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate was probably in a hurry, but um, he said something very true. The king of the Jews. The king of the Jews hanging on the cross, choosing to lose control. You know, that's why the cross is a kind of a catch-22 with the devil. You know, he uses Peter to keep Jesus from going to the cross. Matthew 16, when Jesus begins to tell the disciples, I will have to go to the cross, Peter says, it cannot be so with you. And Jesus had to rebuke Peter and say, get behind me, Satan. But that same Satan uses a Judas Iscariot to send Jesus to the cross because Satan could not understand the cross. Nor are we able to fully understand the cross. How can we, in a dog-eat-dog competitive world, be relevant? I want to tell you that one of the things uh, I learned in the government is that you can be relevant, you can be competitive without joining the rat race. You know, the problem with the rat race is that even if you win the race, you are still a rat. Uh, your identity is not defined by what you do. I was watching a, an old Hindi movie. Uh, th those were days of silly movies, but they had some excellent uh, screenplay dialogue. And here is a, a bit in English, actually. A father is uh, uh, supervising the English homework of his seven-year-old son. The question is, what is your father? And the boy is writing, my father is a man. And the father says, no, you should write, my father is a businessman. And the boy says, businessman is a big word. I would commit a spelling mistake. Uh, but as I listen to that, I realize that even the English language has been infected by a wrong definition of identity. The answer to the question, what are you, is what you do, not what you are. Whereas Jesus introduces identity in a different way. When he introduces um, the persons of the Trinity, he does not use proper nouns. Zeus, Hermes, Jupiter. No. Father and Son. The Father discovers his identity because of the Son. The Son derives his identity because of the Father. You know, it's an absolutely revolutionizing thought. When you realize that your identity does not come from what you possess, uh, your degrees, your money, but from your relationship with God, with his people, and with his creation. I think that is really what is going to give you identity. And I don't think there is any faith or philosophy which comes anywhere here. Because that begins to bring together the value of the kingdom of God. And that is why we become part of the answer to the kingdom of God. We created the problem but we are also part of the answer. Last night uh, with uh, Prana and Vani and the children, uh, we were watching uh, the Lego movie. Have you seen that? 
You know, some of these movies are tremendous pieces of psychology. And in the Lego movie, the one who wants to build, you know, the, what is it, the president of business, whatever his name is. Uh, what does he want to do? He wants to control people by using a glue. And the liberating way is to free up people. Because uh, Brother Kian is here, I wanted to say something. Uh, we lived in Singapore for 11 and a half years. We used to have a Bible study in the home of a minister. At that time, he was Minister of Transport. And I remember once having a talk with him because the Singapore government uh, brings several restrictions because they do not want their country to descend into chaos. And I remember telling him one-on-one, -on -one, you can't say these things in public in Singapore. You'll be thrown out immediately. Uh, I told him, uh, you know, if you suppress freedom in order to avoid chaos, you will also suppress creativity. Because creativity and chaos are two sides of the coin of freedom. In a fallen world, you just cannot have one without the other. And that's what that movie teaches us, if you really begin to think about it. So we can uh, watch movies theologically, and I think there are great movies which are being made. I, uh, one of the earlier movies which I really liked was um, Bruce Almighty, where Morgan Freeman playing God, as uh, Jim Carrey in one of his serious roles, you know, very few serious roles. He says, you be God, but don't interfere with human freedom. Amazing. How can God, without interfering with our freedom, really begin to make us do what he wants us to do? That is the mystery of the Christian life. That is the good news. One aspect of the good news. There are many aspects. But this is the aspect of the good news which is going to make us a blessing to the rest of God's creation. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you because there is no one like you, because in your relationship there is perfect freedom between the Father and the Son through the Spirit. And now we thank you for sharing that freedom with us, and without the cross we would never be able to experience that freedom. Freedom would descend into license, or we would go to the opposite extreme of total control. We pray, Father, that as um, human beings, as parents bringing up children, as responsible citizens of society, you would help us, Lord, how to keep these two in that perfect tension that only you can teach us so that we can truly usher in your kingdom in this world. Amen.